Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Stephen Reichlin. Stephen is a barbecue master, a multi-award winning author and journalist, perhaps most well-known here in the greater Toronto area as a PBS television host. His popular shows include Project Smoke, Project Fire, Primal Grill, Barbecue University, and his newest show, Stephen Reichlin's Planet Barbecue. Stephen has redefined global grilling with 32 best-selling books and this year marking the 25th anniversary of his landmark Pièce de Résistance, The Barbecue Bible. Stephen has lectured on barbecue history and culture to audiences as diverse as the Smithsonian Institute, the Library of Congress, and Harvard University. But this all started with his birth in Japan, a very practical college degree in French literature, and a fellowship studying medieval cooking in Europe. Welcome, Stephen, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. I am actually coming to you from the island of Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, and uh, I'm doing okay. I'm just getting over an awful cold, so uh, my voice probably sounds an octave lower than usual, but maybe that gives me a good radio voice. <laughs> that is good. Nice and deep. Now, Stephen, you are based out of both Coconut Grove, Florida, and Martha's Vineyard. That is correct, yeah. Summer months in Martha's Vineyard. Now, just recently, you hosted what you lovingly call a fantasy camp for coal heads in <laughs> California wine country. How'd that go? It went great. We uh, we were at a new location for the school, but actually a return location for the TV shows, a beautiful 10,000, that is 10,000 acre ranch uh, in Southern California, uh, 125 horses on the property, beautiful trails. Uh, our school was uh, was in an outdoor classroom right outside the rodeo rink, and uh, just couldn't couldn't have been better. Fabulous. Now, have you found that your camp attendees are fans from your books or your TV shows, or is there even a distinction? Uh, a little bit of both, or all three. Uh, and in fact, we had a couple of people from uh, Ontario uh, join us this year. Uh, we, you know, we do attract people from all over the world. We've had students from as far away as Hong Kong, uh, Dubai, Colombia, and South America. Uh, most of our students are North American. I'd say probably 15%, 20% of our students are uh, returnees. So uh, they're either gluttons for punishment or we're doing something right. I'm sure you're doing something right. Let's please go all the way back, get the Stephen Reichlin story. There are, of course, many famous Jews from the culinary world but not nearly as many with a Japanese-Jewish background. When and where were you born? And please share your upbringing. Sure. I was uh, born in uh, Nagoya, Japan. Uh, my dad was in the service. Uh, unfortunately, I was there only for the first uh, year of my life, so I did not come away with a great appreciation for Japanese food or uh, Japanese language. However, I have been to uh, return to Japan many times in the course of my uh, research on barbecue. And one time, actually, to uh, battle the Iron Chef in Tokyo, uh, a battle which, quite amazingly, I won, and then I promptly retired. Uh, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, fairly normal upbringing. Uh, I did not come from a family, uh, from, from a barbecue culture, uh, to the extent that anyone did the grilling in our family. It was my mother, who was a ballet dancer and a very impetuous person. She used to light the grill with gasoline and... Uh, her specialty was what was called a Pittsburgh rare steak. It was a steak that was charred as black as coal on the outside, and the heart was still beating inside. 
Fantastic. Well, <laughs> from those starts, you certainly developed your arts and skills. But before all that, you attended Reed College, a liberal arts school in Portland, Oregon, a BA in French literature, and you, in fact, wrote your thesis on the medieval French poet Christine de Pissant, otherwise known as Europe's first feminist. How did you decide on that topic? Uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, well, I majored in French literature. I was fascinated by uh, the Middle Ages. And I tried to pick an author that uh, for whom there existed absolutely no secondary literature. I didn't want to be plowing through academic studies of uh, the François Villard, Routeboeuf, or Rabelais, or any of the other you know famous older French authors. And I came across Christine de Pizon, and you know there was no I could really nothing written about her, so I felt like it was virgin territory. And uh, being a clueless 19-year-old at the time, uh, I'm not sure that I quite seized on her feminist message. But while I was doing my research in the the stacks at Reed Library, I came across a medieval cookbook. Uh, It was called The Form of Curry. It was a medieval English cookbook written in Middle English, which I had also studied because I studied Chaucer. And it blew me away. I mean, I thought the thought that 700 years ago, people were writing cookbooks, and writing's the operative word. Every cookbook back then had to be handwritten. I don't know. It just was that it captivated me. So uh, I proposed to study medieval cooking in Europe to uh, the Watson Foundation. Thomas Watson founded IBM, and these were a series of fellowships created in his honor. And much to my great astonishment, I won a Watson Foundation fellowship to study medieval cooking in Europe. So that got me to Paris, where I, you know, researched medieval cookery manuscripts at the Bibliothèque Nationale and the Bodleian Library in Oxford. And uh, it really got me thinking about the intersection of food and history and culture. And in a sense, I've been, been doing that ever since. Stephen, you've been clear that you are not a chef, that you are a writer first. You went from restaurant and wine critic to barbecue and grilling and found your niche when you recognize that grilling is the world's most universal cooking method. Yeah, it is. And it was a kind of a the simultaneously profound and obvious realization. People grill in virtually every country and vir- vir- virtually every culture on earth, but they do it differently. And in an age where there's a Starbucks on every street corner, you know, to find food that is truly regional, uh, but at the time was extraordinary. So I dashed off a book proposal to my publisher saying, hey, you know, I want to travel around the world and I want to write about barbecue in different cultures. Much to my great astonishment, the following week I had a contract back and off I went. The book was called, that came out, you, you know, you never actually get a book with the title that, or you rarely get a book with the title that you propose. So I had proposed to call this barbacoa, which of course most people know now was the uh, Taino Indian word that gave us our word barbecue. But back then, nobody had ever heard of. We would have sold six copies. My publisher came back with the barbecue Bible, you know, which was uh, it was the right book at the right time, and it became an international bestseller. And there I was in barbecue. Well, you had called the barbacoa the worst original working title in history, but. Stephen, you eventually got to use it because I understand that's the name of your boat. Why it is the name of my sailboat? That is true. Uh, it's also uh, I, it's also the name of one of my companies, the company that manages all my TV shows. So, uh, yeah, you just had to find the right spot for it. I just did. Yep. 
As noted, this year is the 25th anniversary of your landmark book, The Barbecue Bible. It is a Julia Child Cookbook Award winner and has sold more than 1 million copies. Why has this title endured so strongly with the public after all these years? You know, uh, I think what I tried to accomplish when I came to barbecue, it was really sort of this incohate mass of traditions, superstitions. Uh, I, you know, do it this way because my daddy did it this way. You know, the guys in Mississippi would say, no, this is the right way. The guys in Kansas City would say, no, this is the right way. The guys in Azerbaijan would say, no, this is the right way. And what I tried to do in that mess of disorganized information was come up with a system, you know, for sort of scientifically understanding uh, the arts of live fire cooking. So the first thing I did was to, uh, to sort of determine the five methods of live fire cooking that are used all over the world. And they are direct grilling, indirect grilling, smoking, spit roasting, and what I call caveman grilling or grilling in the embers. And then I tried to uh, sort of break grilling down into the different kinds of grills, right? Because we've got wood burning grills, we have charcoal burning grills, we have gas grills, uh, now we have pellet grills, you know, and each of those functions in a different way. And then I tried to kind of coordinate all that information with the different fuels, right? Because wood burns differently than charcoal, burns differently than gas, burns differently than pellets. Most grill cultures in the world have some sort of seasoning, and it might be a rub, it might be a marinade, it might be a glaze or a butter that you apply during the cooking, or it might be a barbecue sauce or a salsa that goes on at the end. So I kind of... Uh, organized all that material by when the flavoring goes on, right? And many of the flavorings in the world go on before the meat goes on the grill while the meat is still raw. So that would be a marinade, it would be a rub, it would be a spice paste, etc. And then there are many flavorings that go on while the food is actually grilling. And that, that would be basting. You know, if you baste while you grill, you might spray uh, a, a spit-roasted chicken with white wine. And then finally, once the cooked food comes off, you know, you might serve with a barbecue sauce or a chutney or a, or a relish. So uh, basically, in this giant mass of information, uh, I tried to impose a logical order. And I guess for me, the best analogy would be that of language. And when you learn a new language, there are two components. One, you need to learn the vocabulary, and those are the ingredients. And believe it or not, back then, 25 years ago, commonplace ingredients today like lemongrass or coconut milk or pimenton, smoked paprika, those were exotic and they required explanations. And the other part of learning a language is uh, the grammar, understanding the rules by which the vocabulary is combined. And that for me was maybe the most interesting part about Barbecue Bible was, was sort of trying to figure out the grammar of grilling. You know, what are the steps? What what's consistent from culture to culture and country to country. And to the extent that I was able to explain that in a coherent way, I think maybe that accounts for uh, part of the success of Barbecue Bible. The other reason, you know, it was the right book at the right time and I got lucky. Now, Stephen, what I love about the book is the variety and you clearly put the miles on. To put this book together, you traveled more than 150,000 miles to 25 countries on five continents Presumably, you love to travel, but what is it about food tourism that really gets you excited? You know, it's discovering new tastes, new flavors, new sights, new smells, and above all, new people. And 
I found with barbecue, you know, it's a universal language. And look, I do not speak Hindi. I do not speak Balinese. But with our shared passion for grilling, I would take one of my books. I'd kind of point to the picture of me on the back, show the kind of a recipe in the food, you know, on the page. And we were communicating. And I think that's, I think for me in terms of travel, you know, when you travel with, I, I like to travel with a purpose. I always, I always much prefer to travel for work than for so-called pleasure. Traveling for work for me is pleasure. But you go from being a, a tourist to an insider. You know, I remember when I was in Thailand and uh, in, in Thailand, the people who are reputed to do the best grilling are the Isarn. And it's a tribe on the Laotian border Poor, you know, they're the guys doing the construction work and the, the you know the sanitation work, uh, but they're amazing. You know, Isarn grilling is ama- uh, amazing, and I was invited to an Eastern Isarn, you know, I won't even say restaurant eatery with a dirt floor and a kind of screenless window overlooking a stagnant canal. Uh, but I had an amazing meal. You know, I wondered if I was going to survive it. But the beauty of grilling is that you know the hot fire sterilizes the food. Uh, but I mean, those kind of experiences, you know, if you were on a tour bus, you just would not have those kind of experiences. That's fantastic. Now, this past Memorial Day, you launched your new public television series, Stephen Reichlin's Planet Barbecue. Congrats on the new show as it approaches the Thank end you. of season one on PBS. I understand that you assess success two ways, the carriage test and the airport test. <laughs> yeah, so the carriage test is uh, how many... Stations in the public television network carry the show. And at this point, we're about 92%, uh, which is pretty darn good. Uh, we also air at a number of shows, uh, a number of uh, stations in Canada, which is always very gratifying because in a minute I'll tell you about my Canadian connection, but I have strong Canadian connection. Uh, the airport test is when I'm walking through an airport, people kind of say, Hey, aren't you that guy who? And, uh, I've noticed a definite uptick in that this summer. So uh, some people must be watching the show. They absolutely are. That's great. Now, we love on this podcast to see how the sausage gets made, so to speak. So let's go behind the scenes on shooting Planet Barbecue. How many people are typically involved to put an episode together? And how much footage do you shoot that eventually becomes a single episode? Great questions. Two great questions. So our crew is about 20, and that's divided into five teams, right? So we've got, on my end, the culinary team, which includes a field chef who, you know, when I'm doing one brisket and I say, here it is now, and here's what it looks like five hours later, obviously we can't wait five hours. So we might cook six briskets to be able to show the various steps. That's our culinary team. Uh, We have a styling team that then does the beautiful final styling for the dishes, they're the ones that also set out or measure out all the ingredients in the uh, little bit cups that I dump and just dress the setup. Uh, we've got the camera crew. Uh, we've got the engineering crew. Uh, we've got the director. Got a fire wrangler, or actually two fire wranglers. And uh, they're the folks that are responsible for building the grills, keeping them uh, running in top performance. Uh, all of a sudden, when in an emergency, I need a lit fire, lit, lit chimney starter, they've got them. And the production typically takes two weeks. I would say for each half-hour episode, we're shooting roughly between four and five hours, and that's on at least four cameras. So that's a lot of footage that doesn't get used or might be recycled later. We also have a social media guy who's with us, you know, because that's become part of uh, of the television experience now. 
So, you know, it's a lot of work. And you notice in my shows, I, we always show footage of the crew in the background, me t- conferring with the crew. And I do that because I don't want people to think that it's just one guy, you know, in all his genius up there on the set. I mean, it really is a team effort, and I want to show the team that helps make it possible. I do like that part of it. And the other thing I like is the outtakes. My white uh, picky, my white picky always asks, how is Steven not dripping all over himself? And then in the outtakes, we see the reality of you eating juicy barbecue and getting it all over yourself. Yeah. So uh, the outtakes, we did that one year. I think the first time we did that was made with Primal Grill and people loved it. And, you know, I like to say I hate it, but I mean, it's, it's, it's fun. It's good to poke fun at yourself. And uh, and people do like that. You mentioned the new show is uh, Planet Barbecue, and there's a kind of an interesting story behind the name. So when Barbecue Bible was on press, literally on press at the printers, uh, some one of my editors said to me, "You know, you ought to call this book Planet Barbecue, right? Not the Barbecue Bible, because it's about global grilling. Planet Barbecue is perfect." Dang, I, too late to change the title, uh, but uh, the name stuck. And so uh, about 10 years later, I came back, revisited the topic of global grilling and did write a book called Planet Barbecue. And I've always wanted to make a show called Planet Barbecue. And so this was my chance to do it. Excellent. Well, I was glad you're able to use it. And you mentioned, Stephen, you know, gave the example of six briskets, but only one kind of gets featured. So I want to know what happens to all that food you're preparing on the show, because there must be tons left over. There's a lot of food left over, uh, but the thing is, you know, the whole crew is uh, on the set by 6 a.m., even if we don't start uh, shooting till 8. Television crews are famously ravenous. They're always hungry, and uh, I guarantee you everything gets eaten, and if it doesn't, you know, there's security guards, there are uh, people on site, you know, we make sure that food goes to good use. And of course, my follow-up would be, with all that food testing and eating, how do you not pack on the pounds? I'm lucky that uh, I have a good metabolism. I'm also much more a taster than an eater. You know, a couple bites of something uh, is fine. At a restaurant, my perfect meal is, you know, three or four appetizers on a main course. I do, you know, I try to remain active. I walk every morning, uh, weight routine, nothing crazy, but, you know, I just try and keep moving. Of course, I would be remiss if I didn't take advantage of your expertise for some barbecue talk. So let's briefly run through a few items. Grilling versus barbecuing, they are not the same. They are not. Grilling is a direct high heat method used for small quick cooking foods like steak, chicken breast. The idea is you put the food directly over the fire, high heat, short cooking time, you know, when you cook a burger, three to four minutes per side. True barbecue is a low heat indirect method used for large, tough cuts of meat, and always in the presence of in smoke, uh, uh, wood smoke. So you would barbecue a beef brisket, you would barbecue spare ribs, uh, you would barbecue a pork shoulder. Those are done, grilling is typically done around 500 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, barbecuing would be done around 250 degrees Fahrenheit. Or grilling, you know, cooking time is measured minutes, barbecue, it's uh, measured in quarter days. It's, you know, Long and slow. The difference between barbecuing and smoking. Ah, well, barbecuing and smoking are very similar. All barbecued foods are smoked. And I say that that's really important because, you know, let's say every once in a while there's an irreputable place that might 
cook the food in the oven and then put liquid smoke on it. Or like if you buy bacon, I mean, that's most bacon actually never sees the inside of a smokehouse. Also, all barbecued food is smoked, but not all smoked food is barbecued, right? Think about smoked salmon. Uh, that's not barbecue. Think about smoked cheese. That's not barbecue. Actually, bacon isn't really barbecue. So, you know, it's an interesting distinction. And I go into that in great depth in my book, Project Smoke, which came out shortly before COVID. Now, you famously love live fire cooking. You've alluded to the five methods of live fire cooking. But why is caveman grilling your absolute favorite method? And what is it? So caveman grilling, what you do is you build a charcoal or wood fire. Let's say you're working on the charcoal grill. You get rid of the grill grate and you lay your food directly on the embers. And that might be a steak. It might be an ear of corn. It might be the vegetables for salsa. And you char the food right on the embers. And I love it, first of all, because it's dramatic and outrageous. Second of all, because it produces a flavor that's very different than conventional grilling. You get microsurface charring, you get a little bit of grit, uh, but in a good way. It's, it's a very dramatic, dynamic, energetic way of cooking. And I, 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 lo- I love it for all of those reasons. You know, when somebody sees you take a $100 steak and lay it on the embers, like I did the first time, you know, is this going to work? But it, in fact, does work. You know, a couple tips. First of all, I prefer to work over lump charcoal rather than briquettes because it's pure wood. Second of all, before you lay the food on the embers, I like to fan it with a folded newspaper, blow off any loose ash. The food goes on the embers. You need to move it a couple times because it's an uneven heat. And when you take the food off, you have to kind of shake it against the, uh, tap it, tap your tongues against the edge of the grill to knock off any loose embers and then transfer it to a wire rack or a metal sheet pan, not a plastic or wooden cutting board or platter because, you know, you may have some embers on it. One thing I love about you is your confidence. You get the bravery award. Stephen, you went to Tuscany. Uh, and I don't know how you managed to do live fire caveman grilling there and not get lynched. Yeah, I did a TV show a few years ago. It was called Stephen Reichlin Grills Italy, although it was actually in Italian for Gambara Rosso, which is the Italian Food Network. I got a lot of dirty looks from the crew when I was the premise of the show was first half of each episode. I traveled around Italy. I ate what local grillmasters had to prepare. And then the second half of the show, we rented a villa in, in uh, Tuscany, and I did my versions of what I had seen. So when it came time to do the Bistecca alla Fiorentina, I laid it right on the embers. I think what most blew their minds was when I grilled a pizza. That was just like they, they could not conceive of cooking a pizza on a barbecue grill. You know, they, they tasted, they learned, you know, listen, I have enormous respect for Italy. They... Uh, about tradition. I love tradition. And I'm grateful that they let me uh, mess around with their grilling scene for, for 13 weeks. You live to tell the tale. <laughs> Charcoal versus gas versus wood. Is it just preference or? Well, my favorite fuel is wood. Why wood? Because when you cook over wood fire, you're generating both heat to do the cooking and smoke to add flavor. Uh, my second favorite would be charcoal. Why charcoal? Because it burns hotter than gas, and it's very easy to smoke on charcoal. You simply add wood chunks, wood chunks, or wood chips. Uh, if using the latter, you soak them in water first to slow down the rate of combustion. 
However, that being said, I own gas grills on a busy weeknight. I fire up a gas grill like, you know, like everybody else does because we're time starved. My, I guess my answer is all of the above and then some, but you know, if I had to, if I had to take a grill or a fuel to a desert island, it would be wood. The big green egg must have, despite the investment or just really great marketing. A big green egg is pretty cool. It's a, it's an icon. Next year they're celebrating their 50th anniversary. So they're doing something right. And I also love the attitude of uh, their owner, Ed Fisher, who, uh, you know, once said it was the overnight success that took 40 years. Ed imported pinball machines from Japan and then to sort of, that was a good winter item to, for a summer item, he had found this Kamado grill, which is basically with a ceramic oven that was used to heat homes in, uh, in Asia. He brought it back. And I mean, I'm sure for the first 15 years of his company, his sales were in the hundreds thousands you know today it's totally iconic it's a great cooker and it's a great cooker because it's so versatile you can cook low and slow you can cook hot and fast the venting system allows you to adjust the temperature very dramatically it looks cool you know funny thing about an egg there's something like so endearing about the egg and maybe it's i don't know if this is true or not but there's a yeah you know the, the first big green egg was red by the way it wasn't green and did Ed read uh, Dr. Seuss's uh, ham and what was it, green ham and eggs or green eggs and ham, whatever that children's book is? And did he get the idea there? I don't know. But people have an emotional connection to a big green egg that they don't have to most other grills. I think you're exactly right. It is that emotional connection. And tied to that is what do you feel has the greatest impact on barbecue success? Equipment, food quality, or technique? Hmm. I think technique to be honest with you, uh, because a good griller can achieve great results on any kind of grill. I was uh, absolutely shocked to learn from your books that you can do dessert on the grill. Uh, any comments on that? Was that something to kind of round out the toolbox or is that something that you kind of advocate now uh, people try? Well, you know, my mandate is uh, cook everything on the grill, even dessert. That used to be. Now it's, you know, cook everything on the grill, even breakfast. But I do believe that uh, if something tastes uh, great, baked, fried, or sautéed, it probably even tastes better grilled. And and dessert on the grill, you know, it's uh, when you write a book, you know, when you write a cookbook, you, you know, you think of a book like The Movements of Music, and there's always a, uh, a coda at the end, and, you know, that's dessert. But the fact is that live fire and wood smoke can really work wonders on a uh, on a number of desserts. Uh, we were at Barbecue University over the weekend, and one of the desserts we made was a creme brulee, but we cooked it in a smoker instead of in the oven. So we added a smoke, smoky element to the custard, which was just, it's otherworldly. You know, it takes a dish you've eaten, you've eaten a million times, and it just makes you look at it anew. Well, topic for another show, Stephen, because uh, my wife, Vicky, creme brulee is what she lives for. So when she finds out there's anything to do it, she's going to love it. Of course, in Canada, when we are not playing hockey and we're not shoveling snow, we do like to grill all year long. Any special tips for cold weather grilling? Both a funny anecdote and a special trip. So uh, a few years ago, I was invited to Calgary uh, to do a barbecue class. I flew in from Miami in my you know, little leather loafers. I don't know. Maybe I had a long shirt. Maybe I didn't. September. I mean, what could go wrong in September? Well, the night of my class, they got six inches of snow. 
So uh, I got a very uh, a crash course in winter grilling. Uh, a couple of points. Uh, first of all, do not position your grill under a tree branch that is loaded with snow because it will melt and fall on you. Second of all, remember that even though it might only be zero degrees outside, uh, a grill is still hot. And we have a tendency to forget that grills are hot. You need more fuel. Cooking times are slower. Uh, you might want to cook things that cook a little bit quicker. I tend to do direct grilling in the snow, you know, snowstorms because, but frankly, it's less time outside. Now, I know the cold doesn't bother you guys, but, you know, uh, I live in Miami. So uh, for me, when it's 50 degrees out, that's winter of uh, 50 degrees Fahrenheit. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Stephen Reichling, please check out the more than 160 additional episodes available anytime. We've got Rob Rainford, Matt Basili, Sue Lee, Ivy Knight, Joe Friday, and Ted Reader. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. I want to talk a little, if you don't mind, about the business side of your empire. You have done an amazing job building a brand. You're synonymous with barbecue, grilling globally across so many mediums. You got your books, your TV shows, your website, your educational programs. Perhaps you'd accept a positive comparison to your PBS stablemate, Rick Steves, who has built a similar empire around world travel. Well, that's very kind, and I'm uh, very flattered. You know, it was funny. After Barbecue Bible came out, I actually had not made the commitment to barbecue yet. And I decided I was going to write a noodle bottle because you know what? This travel around the world for food is pretty cool. But it just didn't really go together the same way. I mean, the barbecue Bible book proposal, I wrote it in a morning. I mean, it was that that quick. So I sat down and I made a list. I'm a uh, veteran list maker. I, I mean, that's kind of how I get things done. And I made a list of all the things I wanted to do with barbecue. And they included... TV shows, uh, Barbecue University, uh, products, line of cooked foods, you know, prepared barbecue. I mean, foreign program, foreign language shows. And I put the list in my wallet and uh, I kind of forgot about it. But damn, if within two years, I all of those initiatives had started. Uh, so I appreciate the uh, comparison to Rick Steves. It's, it's been fascinating. You know, I think what I love about my work is that every day is different and you never know what's going to happen next. Uh, two weeks ago, I got a call from a big corporation in uh, Switzerland that wanted uh, an interesting consulting project on sort of understanding the chemistry of barbecue. Last week, I got a call from a country in Middle East, in the Middle East that was to organize their first barbecue festival. So you never know what's going to happen. Well, what I find fascinating is PBS or public broadcasting is not the medium you'd expect to use to build a commercial business empire, but both you and Rick oh, Steves... Boy, have you, you can say that again. <laughs> both you and Rick Steves have done it via PBS. Why and how? Well, I guess for me, you know, my approach to barbecue is one of education. I'm a writer. I think like a writer and I, I, I'm an educator. Educator. And my mandate and mission whenever I do a TV show is to help enrich people's lives by helping them to grill better and eat better and understand where what we're grilling fits in world culture. And I'm not interested in doing a show where I scream at people 
or kick people off the show or, you know, ride around on a motorcycle and use profanity. I mean, I respect food and I respect people too much. So PBS, it's, you know, that seemed like the place where I belonged and it's been very good to me and I can only be good to it. A friend of this podcast and another barbecue heavyweight chef, Rob Rainford, is currently shooting a new show for the Food Network. Stephen, did you ever think of taking your brand over to the Food Network? Yeah, uh, we've had conversations over uh, at various points, but you know, PBS. I've been on PBS for twenty years now, and it's 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 kind of home for me. As you mentioned, you did compete and win an Iron Chef competition. It was not part of the Iron Chef America competition we're more familiar with here in North America, but it was a crazy story working over live fire. Do you mind sharing your Iron Chef experience in Japan? Sure. So uh, I got a call many years ago from a producer of a Japanese TV station, and they wanted to know, they wanted to send a uh, TV host over to my home in Martha's Vineyard to issue a barbecue challenge. And that challenge was he was going to bring five bizarre ingredients, traditional bizarre ingredients from Japan, and they wanted to see if I could grill it. So, sure, why not? Uh, And among the ingredients, let's see, there was burdock root, there was red bean paste, there was fermented soybeans, uh, there was like some kind of shark, something made with fermented fish that smelled really awful, but any rate, this guy came and I, you know, came up with some ideas and they liked it so much. By the way, the guy was also, he was a singing TV host. So he came with his guitar and he sang a lot of our inter, uh, interaction. Any rate, they liked the segment so much. They said, how would you like to come to Japan and battle the Iron Chef in Tokyo? Why not? You know, uh, return to my, uh, my homeland, as it were. The show, actually, the battle appeared on this crazy show called Barry Barry World Vision. And it was sort of a a crazy variety show. And I battled a chef named Rokusboro Michiba. Now, he was the meanest, scariest iron chef I had ever seen. He looked like he ate little Americans for breakfast. And the setup was a little bit different. We, uh, We didn't use the same ingredients. We but each had a table to pick ingredients from. So, of course, he immediately absconded with the abalone and the lobster and uh, had, you know, $1,000 uh, hand-painted platters, etc. And I figured I couldn't compete in that arena. So I did uh, ribs and barbecued chicken. And I think I did a dessert. I think I did a grilled pineapple for dessert. At any rate, so he's doing incredibly fancy stuff. And I actually got the Japanese to uh, eat the ribs with their fingers. Now, the Japanese never eat anything with their fingers. They're so fastidious. But when the uh, votes were cast and the ballots were tallied, I actually won. It was amazing. And Michiba just, uh, he knows knows only one word in English, and that word was rematch. And uh, I said, thanks, but I'm hanging up my uh, trophy. And that was my Iron Chef story. That's good. Drop the mic and get out of there. You bet. I understand that Julia Child gave you the best business advice ever, which was, Stephen, save your receipts. <laughs> well, that was one piece of advice. Yeah, Julia was a neighbor and a friend of mine when I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And um, she and I used to shop at the same supermarket, Savonors. And I guess Julia was audited by the IRS once, which is why she gave me that advice about saving my receipts. But the most important advice she gave me was 
find a subject that is of broad interest, in other words, that a lot of people would be interested in, and then find a way of approaching it that you and only you can do and nobody else can do. And it took me it took me a while. I wrote five books before Julia that didn't sell very well. And then I wrote a few books after Julia that sold okay. But with barbecue, it finally hit because everybody's interested and passionate in barbecue. But the approach I took, which was to travel around the world and study global grilling, I can't imagine there was anybody else nutty enough to have logged in. I've been to something like 75 countries now, when six continents studying barbecue. So that was my approach. That coupled with the educational approach with the sort of grammar language model, I think that was what, what was unique, uh, what made my approach unique. And, you know, Julia's formula worked. Julia, wherever you are, thank you. That's great. By the way, uh, when the Barbecue uh, Bible won the uh, ACP Julia Child Award, Julia gave it to me in person, and she gave me a kiss on stage, and it was a deeply, deeply moving moment. I dedicated the book to my grandfather, who had passed away recently, and uh, she asked me about him, and you know, it was a beautiful moment. It must have been very gratifying. Yeah. Stephen, it's been said the best way to make a million dollars in the restaurant business is to start with two million dollars. What has been your ex- <laughs> what has been your experience in the restaurant industry? Well, that's a good question. So, a couple of years ago, I've never owned a restaurant. I consult on restaurants for a cruise line called Windstar. In fact, I'm headed to Halifax uh, in a couple of weeks to pick up uh, Windstar, and we're going to go over the uh, the menus and recipes for the 2004 menu. But in that instance, you know. All the infrastructure, all the ordering, all the day-to-day operations were wind stars, and it was just my ideas and my food. So that's a very easy way to approach a restaurant. But a few years ago, I started a company called Planet Barbecue, and uh, we make frozen, ready-to-heat, neat barbecue, everything from ribs and brisket to interesting sausages, wings, pastrami bacon, et cetera, et cetera. And that has been a real education it's, you know, we're growing, we're still a startup. But the moment I brought my steps on uh, Jake Klein into the company and uh, my partner, Craig Reed, who used to be the food and beverage manager at the Broadmoor, where I did my barbecue university, things really started to take off. All I can say about that is, is a lot harder than you could ever imagine. There are a lot more details than you could ever dream of. But we'll get there. We're, we're on our way. Excellent. Building the brand. Now, Stephen, you are literally known around the world. Is being a recognized celebrity a weird or a positive experience? Oh, it's fun. You know, somebody once called me a minor celebrity, and I think that's probably a pretty good term. And that means that I get the sort of uh, little joy of every once in a while people recognizing me and thanking me. But it's not like I can't go out in public, you know, not constantly besieged in public. No, it's gratifying, you know. I worked very hard and have worked very hard over the last 25 years to do what I do. And the recognition, you know, when you get recognition, it it, it pays off. It feels terrific. Where is the strangest or most unlikely place that you have been recognized? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I don't know if this is strange or unlikely, but it was certainly uh, one of the most amazing experiences of my life. So I was in St. Mark's Square in Venice, uh, taping the Venetian segment of this Italian Stephen Reichland Grills Italy show. And that particular, you know, 
a lot of TV shows, travel shows, you know, you set the place. So I wasn't cooking in St. Mark's Square, obviously. I was just walking through. And Italian fans came up to me, and Italians said how much they love my work. And American fans came up to me in English and said how much they like my work. And I think there may have even been a French uh, Quebecois who came up and counseled me. And that, that all happened in one day, and that was, that was a pretty extraordinary experience. That's fantastic. To get to recognize in multiple languages... I got one more for you. What's the strangest or most unique piece of fan mail you've received? Do people actually send you food? Uh, people have never sent me food. Uh, well, actually, people have sent me food, but it's generally a thanks. A few uh, months ago, I did a, um, I was a, made a guest appearance on a food journalism class, and the uh, professor sent me some highly delicious granola. But, uh, it was not smoked, I'm pleased to report. Weird. Okay, I'll tell you the weirdest request. Um, I don't know if it was a request, but uh, there was a couple that I guess met online, and on their first date, the guy brought the girl a copy of the Barbecue Bible. And fast forward two years, they were actually married, and they swore their wedding vows on the Barbecue Bible, and they sent me the picture. That was that was pretty cool. That is excellent. It's a real Bible in so many ways. Now, this being the Toronto Legends podcast, I do want to tap into your memories, experiences from travel to Toronto, but any other parts of Canada. So go ahead and you mentioned you did have some connections to this country. Sure. So anyway, as you know, I majored in French literature. And uh, when my book, Miami Spice, which is a pre-barbecue book, came out, I, the French-Canadian publisher uh, was in Miami on vacation. We got together and he realized I spoke French, so he brought me up to uh, Quebec to do a book tour. And during that book tour, uh, a guy named Sébastien Arsenault, who at the time owned uh, Zest TV, which has since become, uh, well, now it's owned by Québécois, said to me, Stephen, how would you feel about doing a uh, French-language TV show? It's a Monet, like, that's really going to happen, you know. Any rate, nine months later, I was on the set in Knowlton, uh, Knowlton uh, Quebec, Bonjour, je suis Stephen Reichland. Bienvenue au Maître du Grill. So I did a, uh, I did four seasons of Le Maître du Grill in French. Then we did uh, Les Incontournables du Barbecue, and we did two other series in French. My French is, I'm, I'm fluent. I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't speak a perfect French. So I have an American accent, but the Quebecois are gracious enough not to uh, give me grief about it the way the French would. And so that was, you know, so I was finally able to say to my poor father after 20 years, you see that degree in French literature finally paid off. And uh, it, to this day, I walk around uh, Quebec City or Montreal and people say, bonjour, Steve. Or it's funny, they actually call me Monsieur Reichland, which always makes me look over my shoulder like it's my dad, you know, following me. But uh, but uh, that's that's been a great part of the adventure. And uh, I have to say, you know, you guys are so great and... I love the hospitality of Canadians. I love the hospitality of uh, the Québécois. I've always uh, eaten very well in Toronto. You guys are nice, you know. You, your politics—you don't—you don't have crazies in your politics. You know, you seem to have a reasonable approach to gun control. I mean, you're doing everything right, then we're doing wrongs. So. Hats off. <laughs> What's not to love? Well, we do watch you here. WNED is the PBS station, which is kind of shared between. Buffalo and Toronto. So uh, we always get this spillover, so to speak. So it's great that you uh, have a big fan base here. 
As we Thank close you. up, you've got the 25th anniversary of your Barbecue Bible. The first season of your new show, Stephen Reichlin's Planet Barbecue on PBS, is coming to a close. What are you working on next? Well, interestingly, I'm working on my first non-grilling book uh, in 15 years. It's a book on planches and griddles. Now, I'm not sure where you are with that in Canada, but in the United States, these stand-up griddles are immensely popular. And I come at it, at it from a barbecue perspective because I, I have a plancha, actually, that I manufacture. And I took to putting it on my charcoal grill, throwing wood chips and chunks on the coals or fire so I get smoke. But then cooking foods like delicate fish or pancakes or, you know, things that, eggs, things you can't really cook on a grill. And then closing the lid to trap the smoke. So I, I called that, you know, smoke griddle was the technique. And then that led me to the griddle at large. And, you know, I this new tool and this tremendous interest in it. And I got to say, I'm really having fun with it. Uh, it's uh, it's opened up a whole new field. And, you know, I think I feel like you have to keep learning as you go through life. So this is a new venture. And uh, that book will be out in 2025. Excellent. I like that you're keeping me on trend. I, if I understand you right, Stephen, I can now make my bacon and eggs on the grill. You can. You know, if you read my books, uh, you can make and you could do that before because you can direct grill bacon. And then for eggs, there's a technique in Vietnam where they'll put an egg in the shell on the fire and they'll actually roast it uh, on the fire. You have to work over moderate heat. Uh, but now you can actually do sunny side up eggs on the grill. Excellent. Well, I'm going to keep watching and keep learning. You're always giving me new challenges. That's what I like. It was fabulous meeting you today and hearing all your stories. And we're going to keep watching. And I want to wish you a continued success to you. Thank you so much, Andrew. You too. It's been my pleasure to have you. And to the listeners, on behalf of Stephen Reichlin, I am Andrew Applebaum saying grill on. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.